Good morning. Today's reading will be from Psalm 130, verses 1 through 8. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This concludes the reading of God's word. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, please turn to Psalm 130 in your Bible. Let me get myself situated here. Well, if I were to take a poll and ask for a show of hands, which I will not, uh, asking this question, I wonder whose hand would be raised when we're done. Who in this room believes that they need no self-improvement of any kind, that you are content exactly the way that you are, and there are no flaws in yourself at all that you wish you could change. I would guess that very few of us, if any, would raise our hands, uh, at least if we're being honest. To be human is to be imperfect. It is to be flawed. Even the most confident individuals, the people that we look at with envy, if pressed, know that there are things about them that are broken, unseemly even. And consumer spending habits in our day and our culture confirm that reality. The self-improvement market is a $13 billion industry, and it grows every year especially with the availability of technology. In 2018 alone, consumers spent $27 million on self-help apps only. Personal coaching is a $1 billion market and is growing. And people love to read or listen to self-improvement books to the tune of $1.6 billion every year. Friends, the reality is, and the stats show, we are broken and we're willing to spend our money to do something about it, to try and mend ourselves. And this is just one of the reasons why I love God's word. The Bible, and especially the Psalms, so profoundly address our human need for wholeness, I chose Psalm 130 today as our focus of study because it's a reflection, it's a, it's, it's a meditation on the, the different seasons or maybe stages of a believer's human experience. It's, it's a word no matter what season of life you might find yourself in today. As you may have noticed when Peter was reading it, it begins with a, a minor key and a minor key and the psalmist is in this, this great despair but then it gradually rises to a, a major key. 
sounding hopeful notes that crescendo at the end with a joyful sound of praise. Sounds a whole lot like our everyday lives, does it not, as Christians? Human languishing will often lead to human flourishing and then back to human languishing again and then to human flourishing again. For today, though, we'll focus on just the first half of the psalm. Verses 5 and 6 describe a season of waiting. And so if you're in a season of waiting, I encourage you to meditate on those verses. Verses 7 and 8 are, uh, uh, characterize a season of joy and a season of telling. And if you're in a season of joy, I encourage you to focus on those two verses. But verses 1 through 4 describe a season, what we might call the depths. Here at the beginning of the psalm, the psalmist, the worship leader, is suffering. He's looking for a way of escape. And and in these verses, we see that his season of suffering is unfolding before him. This is a man who knows himself. This is a man who has looked into his heart And by the end of our time together, he and all of us, I hope, will discover what he's looking for, the key to human flourishing. That's the title of this sermon, the psalmist's key to human flourishing. My friend, are you longing for wholeness today, for freedom of heart and mind for peace and joy and rest from your anxiety? You could pull out your iPhone and open up your Amazon app and you could buy a treasure trove of resources that might help you a little bit, that claim to hold the the key to human wellness and human flourishing. Or we could simply turn to God's word. What if I told you you didn't have to spend $13 billion dollars? to find wholeness today, but that God's word is sufficient for whatever season you find yourself in. Let's turn and see what the psalmist's key to human flourishing is. As I said, there are three stages. I'm going to unfold these with you. So stage one, the petition for mercy, verses one and two. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. He says, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now you'll notice in your Bibles that you're, uh, you see a heading on the top of your psalm called, or titled, A Song of Ascents. A Song of Ascents. There are 15 songs of ascents, and I'm sure your, your pastors have told you what a song of ascent is as you have studied some of these, and I look to be sure that you have, and you have. A song of ascent was a community song, a praise song that would be sung by the Jewish people as they traveled up to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the feasts. And these songs were either songs of praise for God's deliverance from an enemy or from from sin, or they, like this one, are songs of lament that are asking God for deliverance from an enemy or from sin. Well, here the psalmist, the worship leader, finds himself way down in the depths of despair. 
And the picture he gives us here is, is a person treading in deep water who is even at the risk of drowning. Now, that's a vivid way to describe the emotional and spiritual condition of the psalmist. This is, this is a man, friends, who has been brought very low. He's in spiritual darkness. He's a man at his wit's end. And immediately the thoughtful reader begins to ask the question, what, what exactly brought on this travail, this suffering? Well, he tells us in verse 2 that he's a man crying out for what? Mercy from the Lord. Now, in the original, five times in this psalm, he refers, refers to the Lord by his divine name, which our English word translates Yahweh, which you may remember the more unusual translation to Moses in the burning bush where the Lord said, tell the people that I am has sent you, me to you. The name conveys God's self-existence, his self-sufficiency, his immediate presence. A person like this who is in the depths recognizes that all of their own resources have failed them. A person in the depths realizes that he or she has no personal merit within themselves that they can any longer rely upon. Friends, have you noticed that so often when we're in the midst of some hardship that we, we tolerate it just long enough to see how long we can deal with it on our own? But when we're in the depths, we can go no lower. And we realize in that moment that we're at the end of ourselves. We have nothing left to depend on. And all we have left is to cry out to the Lord who is near. This is what this man is doing. So friends, right from the outset, Psalm 130 is an invitation to explore the depths of the well of our hearts. I think that often, men especially, but don't laugh, ladies, you too, when we go through life, we can so often just wade around in the shallows, and, and, and we live there, and we never really think very deeply about our own brokenness. And we might get by for a time. You may be able to manage for a time. But then when life hits us hard, if we cannot assess ourselves, friends, we will not experience the grace that these psalms intend for us. Psalm 130 and other songs of lament challenge us to search our hearts, friends, to evaluate our own condition before the Lord so that in doing so, it might lift our eyes to the source of our help and to the grace that he wants to give to us. Friends, in your season of suffering, do you know why you feel the way that you do? Do you know yourself? Have you thought about what's behind 
the hurts, the pain, the tears. This psalmist is an example for us. He is facing himself and seeing his need, he presents his request. I am, he says to the Lord, I am desperate for your mercy. I am desperate for your patient compassion. This is not demand here. No, this is a desperate, active, looking up, looking away from himself in an expression of utter dependence upon the Lord who is in the waters, who is in the depths with him. James tells us in the New Testament, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. The believer who is in the depths cries out to the Lord for his mercy. So that's stage one, his petition for mercy. Now, as we continue to tread water with the psalmist, we begin to learn the source of his suffering, the reason for his suffering. So stage two, if you're taking notes, recognition of the source of his suffering. Verse three, verse three, he continues with, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So he's asking a question. Anyone who's ever gone through a a deep season like this knows what it's like to approach God with some of the hardest questions. Songs of lament give us permission, brother and sister, to ask hard questions. If you've been here, you know what it's like to ask questions like this of yourself. How did I get here? Where did I go wrong to arrive in this place? You've asked those questions of yourself before. Here the psalmist turns to the Lord. And songs of lament ask questions like, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Our psalmist is asking questions. However, he's come to understand why he's in the condition that he's in. The depths his despair has brought on, been brought on by a deep consciousness of his own sin. He's probably asked dozens of questions already, but at some point in the midst of verses one and two, with all of his soul searching, he's begun to see inside of his heart evidence of his own deplorable condition. How many times, friends, have we cried out to God, God, why am I here? And then God so kindly points out the brokenness in our own heart. Alec Matier insightfully says, coming to God with one problem may easily and blessedly expose the real problem that needs to be solved. We've all done this, friends. So often we run to God with some issue outside here caused by someone over there. 
And then God holds up a spiritual mirror. And he shows us our own part in all the drama. The psalmist sees his reflection down here in the depths. He feels his sinfulness. He knows he's responsible for his plummet down into the depths of despair. Now, friends, I want to be careful here. Even though all the brokenness in our lives is somehow owed to the fallenness of creation because of sin, I want to be careful to make the distinction that suffering as a result of sin in general and suffering as a result of our own sin can often be two different things. The depths of the psalmist have been brought on by his own sin against God. He doesn't tell us what it is. It's just enough that we know he has brought it on himself, in a sense. And so therefore, like David in Psalm 32, God's hand day and night has been heavy upon him until he has come to a place of confession and repentance. It's personal sin. But... Perhaps as you read this and you think about your own life, you are seeing some suffering in your life that is due to the fallenness of this world. And you're going through something that you didn't necessarily cause so far as you can see. A season of sickness, perhaps. Mistreatment from someone that you love in your own life, they've turned their back on you. They've stabbed you in the back. They've abandoned you emotionally. Depression caused by lots of things going on around you. Friends, if that's you, I want to encourage you to stay with us. Don't tune out because you've searched your heart and you feel clear before God and you're still suffering. I believe the psalmist would want you to find great comfort in his experience. So back in Psalm 3, the psalmist is asking a question. It's a rhetorical question, means it has an obvious answer, but it's an excellent question. This question is an excellent question, friends, because it reflects both a deep awareness of his own condition before God But it's also an expression of faith in God's character. He asks this question, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Or in the NIV, he says, if you kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could possibly, who could build a case in their own defense before you, O Lord, if you kept a record of my sin?" Who would be let off the hook if you kept a record? And you know the obvious answer to that question, don't you? The answer is no one. These verses are almost like an Old Testament equivalent of Paul saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a, a living human being who is innocent before you. Who is not deserving of your wrath and judgment? All have turned aside, David said. No one does good, not even one. 
The psalmist is keenly aware of his sin, and maybe you're keenly aware of your own sin today. And so what does he do? He, he throws himself on God's mercy. Throws himself. In other words, if God overlooks the sin in him, it will be due to nothing found in him, but owed completely and totally to the character of God. My friend, if we want to discover the key to human flourishing, we must come to terms with our own human languishing because of our sin. Don't mishear me. I am not saying that the hard things that we go through in our lives are retribution from God, are payback from God for our sins against him as if somehow God's punishing us for our wrongdoing. Suffering is part of this not yet fully redeemed world whether you count yourself a Christian or not. But if you are a Christian, please hear me say this if you're struggling with this, your sins have already been punished in the body of Jesus. And your suffering is God's carefully chosen tool and your father, the master surgeon's hand to make you like his son. But friends, let's not make the mistake of convincing ourselves that our sins are just temporary character deficiencies. Obstacles that we need to overcome because they prevent us from really enjoying the life that we really want to make for ourselves. Friends, sin is first transgression against God's law. It's saying yes when he says no or no when he says yes. It's first offense against God. The psalmist sees this. There's no carnival mirror here, friends. Minifying his sin and magnifying his greatness. He sees himself. So, friends, do we see ourselves? Will we allow God's word to reveal ourselves to us? Because unless you and I gain a painful sense of our offense against God, we'll never really be able to move on to the next stage, to verse 4. We'll never really be amazed at the depths of God's mercy. It's going to be trivial. It'll be owed to us. Christ's sacrifice and subsequent justification by grace through faith will be merely well-worn theological data. The gospel becomes just information, friends. If we don't have a sense, always, of our unworthiness before God. And by the way, joy in the midst of suffering won't be experienced. We'll have to turn to other things to get happy again. A Christian is a person who at all times has a a deep sense of his own sinfulness before God and thus at all times knows that he or she is richly being kept by God's mercy. So with verse three, 
firmly planted the source of his brokenness. We can move on to verse 4. Having assessed his own condition for God, he can appeal to what he knows to be true about God, which becomes stage three, the confession. The confession that grounds him. Here it is, verse four. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist readily states that mercy Forgiveness, grace, it's, it's God's nature. This, this is who he is. There is forgiveness with him. Now guys, considering what we've been seeing about sin, that it's ultimately offense against God, it must follow then that all forgiveness for sin must flow from God. Only he can forgive sin. Only he can ultimately forgive offense that's against him. Only the I am can restore sinners to a place of wholeness. And it has to be by his own initiative. So the worship leader, the psalmist, appeals to God based on what he knows to be true of him. How does he know God is merciful? Well, he obviously has a personal history with the Lord. He's very likely seen God's miraculous redemption in his own life. And haven't we all, dear friends, can't we all look back on maybe just yesterday to see God's mercy to us and his goodness to us? But friends, he also knows his history, his ancestors' history. He can look back and he can look to and point at stories of deliverance all throughout the scripture. Stories of deliverance from Egypt, from enemy nations, from plague, from pestilence. This guy knows his Bible Verse 5 says his soul waits in hope. Why? Because he hopes in God's word. God's word details his covenant promise of complete redemption made first to a man named Abraham that all nations and all peoples would be blessed through him and through his promised offspring. And now he traces that all the way up to himself who is in the depths of despair. The psalmist, dear ones, has an expectation in his heart that God can and that God will redeem him and all of Israel from their iniquities. But friends, let us not make the mistake of thinking that forgiveness comes easy or cheaply. God is merciful by nature but he does not turn a blind eye to mine and to your sin. He doesn't act like it's no big deal. He doesn't act like it never happened, and so that's why he forgives us. Oh, don't worry about it. I'll just forget about it. Let's move on. No, my sin, my sin is a serious offense against him, and they must be punished 
my sin must be punished. So because God longs to show mercy to his undeserving people, he made provision in the Old Testament for sin through the temple sacrifice. This psalmist, along with all of his traveling party, is traveling up to the temple in Jerusalem. Behind them, they're walking along a lamb, a ram, a goat, a bull, some kind of animal. And in just a little while, they're going to go into the temple. And they're going to take that animal and they're going to hand it to a priest. And they're going to stand there and they're going to watch the throat of that animal be sliced open before them and its blood will pour out and it will drop to the ground and die. It will then be picked up, prepared and placed on the altar where it will be burned up right before their eyes, right before his eyes, all because of his sin. His his sin. He knows his sin must be covered. Mercy is free because it's who God is, but it's costly. It's not cheap. And there in the depths, mercy does something to the psalmist. Do you see what it does there in verse 4? It creates reverence. It creates awe. He sees the great cost of his sin. He sees the blood shed. And this instills fear in him. Not, not dreadful, terrified fear, but a calming that shuts his mouth and places his hand over it and settles his heart. It's like what the little boy feels on the playground when he's being bullied by the school bully. And he's done everything he can to defend himself to no avail. And he turns around and he sees his dad towering over him and the bully. It creates a settled heart. Humble gratitude. And ultimately restored worship. Charles Spurgeon said, Gratitude for pardon produces far more fear and reverence than all the dread of punishment. Friends, mercy received, not the thunder of wrath, is the catalyst for true worship. It is the steadfast love and plentiful redemption of the Lord when it is seen by us and felt by us that drops us to our face and breaks up the anvil of guilt and condemnation on our heart and it causes us to raise our hands and worship. That's what mercy does. What is the key to human flourishing, dear ones? To wholeness, let me tell you a story about a man in the Gospel of Mark who learned the answer to this question. It's in chapter 2. You can turn there if you like. You don't have to. 
But you may remember the story. Jesus was in Capernaum. He'd come home. And the crowds were gathered because he was teaching and preaching to them. And the word had gotten around that he was there. And so the crowds gathered. If you ever saw the show Chosen, it depicts this scene, I think, really well. And as he's preaching, these four friends kind of push their way through the crowd, but they can't quite get close enough. And the closer you look, you realize that they're actually carrying another friend of theirs on a stretcher. This, this man is paralyzed. He can't walk. And so they realize they can't get close enough to Jesus. And so they find a way to get on the roof of the house, climb up steps, a ladder, whatever it was, and they begin to tear away the roof. And you know what happens? They let this man down in front of all to see in Jesus, of course. And Mark says that Jesus, when he saw their faith, said to the paralytic, take up your bed and walk, right? No. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, that upset the religious leaders because only God can forgive sin. Who can forgive sin but God alone? So Jesus, of course, perceiving what was in their hearts, said in verse 8, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say rise, take up your bed and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. We can imagine this scene in our minds. Jesus sees the faith of these four friends and evidently the eagerness of this man. And, and he sees the obvious need that this man had. And every single one of us, if we're standing around, would see the obvious need of that man. But what does Jesus say first? Son, your sins are forgiven. He forgives his sins before he heals his paralysis. Was Jesus indifferent to his physical need? No. But there's a lesson that he wanted to teach the people standing around in that very brief exchange. The lesson is that spiritual wholeness is of far greater importance than physical wholeness. What this man needed far more than for his legs to regain their strength was for his soul to be made right with God. And the only way for that to happen was for his sins to be forgiven. So on the basis of his mercy, Jesus, the Lamb of God, declared him to be forgiven and then was later led like a lamb to the slaughter to be slaughtered for the sins of that paralytic 
on the cross. Friends, what, what am I saying? And I realize that there are many in this room who may be in a season of despair. I want to say this carefully. Your greatest need today is not to escape your season of suffering. I can't imagine how hard it must be. But your greatest need is something that the psalmist and the paralytic had to learn who were suffering immensely. Their greatest need was to be humbled by their need for a savior. That's the key to a vibrant, joyful life. John Newton wrote a letter to his friend in March of 1767 saying the same thing but much more beautifully than I, so I want to read it to you. He says to his friend, and what a good friend John was, you have one hard lesson to learn. (laughs) That is the evil of your own heart. You know something of it, but... It's needful that you should know it more. For the more we know of ourselves, the more we shall prize and love Jesus and his salvation. I hope what you find in yourself by daily experience will humble you, but not discourage you. Humble you it should, and I believe it does. Are you not amazed sometimes that you should have so much as a hope? That poor and needy as you are, the Lord thinks of you. But let not all you feel discourage you. For if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. And if he casts none out who come to him, then why should you fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but he is power. Friends, this is what the gospel does to us. It humbles us to the depths and it raises us to the heights. The key to human flourishing is to be humbled to the depths by our need for Jesus, for a savior. You can have joy in the bottom of your suffering. It is possible today. I'll tell you a brief story and then I'll stop talking. As of late, I have personally been struggling in my heart with unforgiveness towards someone. I've prayed, I've repented, I've confessed And yet, the pain and the hurt still seems to come out of my heart when I least expect it. And so several months ago, I began studying Psalm 130. My beautiful wife suggested I do so. And so I've been in Psalm 130 for quite a while and praying the same prayers of the psalmist. Psalm 
hear my voice, O Lord. Hear the voice of my pleas from, Lord, if you, if you were to count this sin, if you were to keep a record of it, I'm done. But with you, there is forgiveness that you might be feared. And the other day, the other day I was walking and I'm struggling and I'm praying and I'm rehearsing this passage in my mind. And then for some reason in that moment, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. And I realized that my biggest problem, friends, is not the hurt or the unforgiveness in my heart. The biggest problem is that I am a sinner who deserves the wrath and judgment of God. But God came near to me and gave up his son so that I would not have to receive that. And like a light bulb, immediately what that person did lost its power and my heart was flooded with love for them for the first time in a long time. Now, I am a sinner. I am still going to struggle with unforgiveness in my heart, possibly toward this person I have not attained yet. But guys, this is what God's word does by the Holy Spirit. This is what the gospel does. This is how we escape the depths. We escape the depths when we personalize God's mercy toward us. Have you personalized God's mercy to you? I'm not saying recite the Roman road. I'm not saying give a dry theological treatise on what the gospel is. Has the gospel been personalized for you? Can you put I and me into that gospel? Can you do that for yourself? If you've been reading self-help books, maybe you prefer what some self-help gurus say. Come up with a personal mission statement and live your life by it. Personalize God's mercy. So that when you awake in the morning and I awake in the morning and the thoughts are assaulting us from the moment we wake up and open our eyes and roll out of bed, have a response. Have a response to the assaulting thoughts by reminding ourselves of the mercy of God to people like us who deserve nothing but his wrath and judgment. If you're not a Christian here today, your greatest need is not to get a better job. Your greatest need is not to mend the relationship with your child. Your greatest need is to have your sins forgiven, to have the wrath of God removed from you and placed on Jesus so that you might know his life and life to the full. That's your greatest need. If you are a Christian here today, and you've already been born again, however many years ago it was, your greatest need and my greatest need is to be humbled at every hour 
by the great love of God for people like us who are broken, who need to be mended, who need to be made whole. Let's learn from the psalmist. And let's pray. Lord, we now want to commit our hearts to you. I want to pray that you would take what you have said to us this morning and that you would press it into our hearts, press it into our hearts. Let us, like Newton's friend, be made just a little bit more aware of how much mercy we need. And I pray that that mercy would lower us to the bottom so that we might look up and worship you with our whole heart. Lord, I pray your blessing over Kingsway Community Church. I pray that your grace would fall upon this congregation. I pray that you would perfect that which concerns this church. I pray that you continue this work until you're finished with it, until the day of Christ. Until we meet again, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.